It's a cliché of American politics that special elections, especially at the start of a presidency, are harbingers of the political landscape to come. This year is producing five special contests for vacant House seats. Three of them have been completed. Two more get completed next week. But one of them is meriting the topic of this week's Big Story podcast. I'm David Hawking, senior editor of CQ Roll Call, and with me in the studio, Simone Pathé, Roll Call's senior political correspondent, to talk about the most expensive house race in American history in the Atlanta suburbs in what's known as Georgia's 6th District. Simone is headed there in a couple of days, but she's already got some ideas about the kind of reporting she's going to do. Good morning, Simone. Good morning. How are you? I'm terrific. So before we talk about Georgia's 6th District, let's just do a little bit of uh, scene setting by going backwards in time. Can you just rattle off to remind us what has happened in the special election world so far? Yeah. So as you said, we've already had three so far this year. Um, California, we'll put that one to the side. Not as exciting. A Democrat won a Democratic seat. The other two more exciting ones were in Montana and Kansas. Both turned out to be more competitive than originally expected. I think Democrats kind of wrote these seats off as red districts at the beginning of the year. They both turned out to be single-digit margins in the end. So yes, the Republican won in both places, but National Democrats did invest a little bit in both races, not nearly as much as progressives would have liked. And in both cases, um, in Kansas, Mike Pompeo going to be CIA director. Mm -hmm. uh, In Montana, Ryan Zinke going to be interior secretary for the Trump administration. So there was sort of a Trump angle to this, sort of a direct Trump angle to this. And in both cases, the Democrats outperformed by far how Hillary Clinton did, but didn't quite make it to the top. Exactly. So there was a distinct partisan shift that you saw between the performance of Trump and the performance of the Republican candidates this year. And that for Democrats is a great sign. But at the end, a loss is still a loss. And we sort of think that the uh, the fourth one that finishes next week, there's a fourth one mm-hmm. uh, in South Carolina, Mick Mulvaney, who went from Congress to be the White House budget director, also left his seat open. We sort of think a reprise is in store there. It'll be close but no cigar for the Democrats. Right. Yeah. So Archie Parnell is the Democratic candidate here. He has definitely narrowed the gap. If you look at Democratic polling, the most recent one that I saw, though, is that he is still behind by as much as 10 points. So, and, and, the, and the likely winner is? The likely winner is Ralph Norman, probably going to be a House Freedom Caucus member when he joins Congress, if he wins. Gotcha. So that's the that's the that's setting the stage for the big event. Uh, as I say, it's it's the most expensive house race in history mm-hmm. by a long shot. I think it's um, it, yeah. they've, more than forty million, more than forty million dollars is going to be spent on this one yes. race, which eclipses the old record by some ten million dollars. Yeah, and Are, approaching fifty, I think, approaching by the end of 50. the week. And so that's that makes me sort of shiver uh, <laughs> to think that one house race could generate that much spending. Uh, but it's obviously important to both sides, and so. So in a minute, why do both sides think this is so important? So this seat is on the map because Donald Trump won it by fewer than two points. For Democrats, that was a signal that they could play here, even though it's a seat that has been traditionally Republican at the congressional level for decades. It's the kind of seat where Democrats need to do well next year in 2018. They need to pick up a net gain of 24 seats to win control of the House. They think that the path towards that majority goes through types of districts like this, which are well-educated, affluent, and suburban. 
And he, so am I right that so Hillary Clinton came close. She came within a couple of points of winning, but mm-hmm. didn't, uh, which it was surprising to me when I read that, because as I think you I know, you know, this is the district that before it produced Tom Price, the Health and Human Services Secretary, who's mm-hmm. now left the seat vacant. Senator Johnny Isaacson held the seat and before him, Newt Gingrich held the seat. So it's in, been in not just Republican hands, but prominent Republican hands going back to the 1970s. Right. But but the demographics have changed somewhat. The demographics have changed, certainly. Um, There's a lot of immigrants in this community who work in the high-tech industry, for example, so it's fairly diverse for a Republican district. But you're right. It has been traditionally Republican, and that's what Republicans are banking on. They see that Trump's performance could have been an anomaly here and that these Republicans, like I said, they're well-educated. They didn't respond so well to a president who made controversial remarks, but fundamentally they might still be Republican. The Ossoff campaign and Democrats are trying to change that by turning out voters who have not voted before. Now, of course, yes, they need their path, as you say, their path to taking over the House in 2018 runs through districts like this. But in 2017, obviously the Democrats would like nothing more uh, than to take a seat away from Donald Trump's party and to be able to claim that this was a rebuke of Donald Trump. But I get the sense that the two candidates on the ground aren't quite framing it that way. That's absolutely right. Yeah, neither of them is particularly excited about talking about Trump, especially Karen Handel. I mean, she has benefited from the president. Certainly, he held a fundraiser for her, um, but not in the district. He was in Atlanta for a NRA event. Uh, Mike Pence, Paul Ryan have also held events with her. They're more in line with the kind of Republican who Republicans in this district respond to. Um, On the flip side, on the Democratic side, John Ossoff is not making this about Trump. He is really trying to represent the sort of moderate, centrist Democrat that he thinks can win over Republicans and independents. So why don't we, so as I understand it, Karen Handel is an establishment Republican. She's not a Tea Party, Freedom Caucus type. And John Ossoff, as you just said, is not a Bernie, a Bernie bot. He's not a Bernie (laughs) Sanders Democrat. No, he's not. So to get a flavor for how they view the issues, uh, let's listen to a clip from a recent debate in which they talked about sort of a perennial issue, which is raising the minimum wage. Does either candidate support a minimum wage increase? Mr. Ossoff starts with you. Yes, I do. The minimum wage should be a living wage. I think we can uh, raise it indexed to the cost of living because the cost of living varies widely in urban and rural areas and in different states across this country. I think that increase needs to be implemented at a pace that allows business owners uh, to adapt their business plans so they're not shocked. Their business plans are not shocked by a sudden increase in labor costs. But look, if someone's working a 40-hour work week, uh, they deserve the kind of standard of living that Americans expect. That's part of the American dream, and there are too many folks who are having trouble making ends meet. Minimum wage. This is an example of the fundamental difference between a liberal and a conservative. I do not support a livable wage. What I support is making sure that we have an economy that is is robust with low taxes and less regulation so that those small businesses that would be dramatically hurt if you impose higher minimum wages on them are able to do what they do best, grow jobs and create good paying jobs for the people in the 6th District. So what did you hear there, Simone? Yeah, so at the basic level here, you have two candidates espousing very different opinions of the economy. You have the traditional Republican sort of chamber of commerce opinion that raising the minimum wage will hurt businesses. On the other hand, on the Democratic side, you have Ossoff saying that workers who work 40 hours a week deserve to uh, be able to live comfortably. 
So neither of those um, neither of those positions is getting them in trouble, and but neither of them is probably winning them any votes either. Right. I think these are fairly traditional positions for a Democrat and a Republican to hold. Has there been one issue in the if they're not allowed to talk about Trump? So Trump <laughs> sort of looms like the uh, like the unspoken character in the in the play or the unseen character in the play. Are are there surrogates talking about Trump, or are they ever talking about Trump, or are they just trying to portray this as just another election about the role of government and and you know handle list for repealing and replacing Obamacare and for lowering taxes, and Ossoff is not. Right. Well, it's hard to ignore the energy on the Democratic side here. And nowhere is that more clear than in the amount of money that Ossoff has raised, most of it from outside of the district and outside of the state. About $15 million so far in the past two months, I think $23 million, slightly upwards of that total, by Election Day next week. So that is coming from activists, from regular voters across the country who are really looking at this race, as you said earlier, a referendum, the first referendum on President Trump and a Republican majority government right now. So even if the candidates are not addressing it, that's kind of the elephant in the room. So let's hear, if we can, a couple of clips. Um, I think in, in one, we're going to sort of hear uh, John Ossoff's rationalization for running. Why do you think uh, people from around the country are spending millions of dollars on this campaign, and your campaign in particular? Well, look, I can speak to what I'm hearing here in the district, uh, and that is a desire for fresh leadership, for greater accountability in Congress and in the federal government, dismay with the level of disarray and dysfunction and gridlock and waste that plague Washington, uh, a desire to see something different, and I'm offering that kind of fresh leadership to voters across the district. Uh, and then in another one, we will hear Karen Handel sort of talking about, as you say, the elephant in the room, sort of, does she want Trump? Does she not want Trump? And see how she dances on that one. Do you think that President Trump will come to Georgia and campaign with you? I, I would hope so. I mean, look, we all Republicans, it's all hands on deck for us. We know what's at stake here. And I don't think that um, any this is about any one person. We all have to rise above it, that it is about the district that has a long legacy of Republican leadership. So is it working for Ms. Handel? Is she going to be uh, is she going to be able to be with Trump when it comes to raising money, but not with Trump when it comes to uh, standing for election on her own two feet in a few days? Well, that's the question. We're all waiting to see. I mean, it worked for her in the primary. As you'll recall, in April, we had this huge jungle primary with 18 candidates where both Democrats and Republicans ran together. She defeated 11 other Republican candidates, and she was probably the candidate who was least close to Trump, I would say. You know, she distanced herself the most in that race. She is not a, as, as I think I said a minute ago, but to, to, to reinforce I mean, she is not a Trump type. She is not a she's not an insurgent. She's she she is the establishment that Trump ran against. Right. Right. So she served as secretary of state and then she has run two failed candidacies, one for governor and one for Senate. So she does kind of walk into the Democratic attack that she is a career politician. That's what they're running against her. Uh, they're alleging that she used taxpayer money when she was secretary of state to enrich herself. There's all this imagery of a luxury Lexus SUV that she supposedly purchased. The Ossoff campaign especially has gone after her tenure at the Susan G. Komen Foundation, where she cut ties with Planned Parenthood. They're running ads with breast cancer survivors alleging that she cut off funding for cancer screenings. 
And Ossoff uh, has worked uh, on Capitol Hill. He's mm-hmm. a congressional staffer at a relatively junior level. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also referred to as a documentary filmmaker, although right. I've, I've never actually seen any of his films. <laughs> what is it about his persona uh, that has the base liking him, and what is where is he subject to criticism? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the criticism is, as you said, um, related to his experience level. I mean, first of all, he is super young. He's 30. He's a first-time candidate. Um, And so on the one hand, that is energizing the base. I mean, he's a fairly good looking guy. That doesn't hurt either. Right. And so people see him as as the hope for the party that they can finally deliver a blow to the Republicans and especially the president. So there's a lot of excitement about him, about him getting out and talking to people, about him bringing a sort of youthful energy to the campaign. On the flip side, he doesn't live in the district. As you know, that's not necessarily unusual. A lot of members don't. But he can live in the state, but not the district. It certainly sets you up for an attack. He would respond by saying that he lives nearby. His now fiance is attending medical school at Emory in Atlanta. So fine, he's living with her to support her. But the other big thing is the national security experience. Republicans, especially um, one of the major Republican super PACs, the Congressional Leadership Fund, which has spent more on this race than anyone else, about $7 million. They have gone in hard against him for so allegedly exaggerating his national security credentials. Um, They've even, and this is the the Republican Party too, has run ads saying that um, he would support Syrian refugees, he would support ISIS, like all of these things that portray him as soft on national security. Well, uh, Ms. Handel is taking an approach avoidance um, attitude towards President Trump. Uh, I believe President Trump has had some things to say on Twitter about Mr. Ossoff. Yeah, he has certainly weighed in on this race, as as you would expect him to. You know, he doesn't like to stay out of <laughs> anything. So in that sense, he, he the president, ha- has, has made it about himself uh, in a way the candidates have sure. not. Sure, yeah. All right, Simone, prediction time. Oof. <laughs> What's going to happen? Uh, you know, polls are showing it really tight. Um, Over the last week, I'd say more of the polls were leaning towards Ossoff with a slight lead. I've seen some that are a little bit closer this week. Our our friend Nathan Gonzalez of the uh, Rothenberg-Gonzalez Political Report, with which we have an affiliation, Mm -hmm. uh, they rate this race as leaning Mm -hmm. or tilting or leaning uh, in Mr. Ossoff's favor. I would agree with that. I think he has a slight edge. I do think it's going to be close. It'll be interesting to see what happens on election day. We've heard a lot about the early vote and and both sides, but particularly the Ossoff campaign trying to really um, energize African-American voters, energize people who don't normally turn out in midterms, let alone special elections. Remember, Democrats usually have lower turnout in specials and midterms. So Republicans are banking on that working to their advantage. At the end of the day, it'll be interesting to see, do the fundamentals of the district, which we talked about being such a ruby red seat, do those come home and save handle at the end? It will be fascinating to watch. Whatever happens, uh, you know that both parties have both winner and loser talking points at the ready, which they will assert emphatically. Uh, But hopefully uh, this conversation has gotten you in the audience uh, ready to be more uh, subtle critiquers of this race. Thank you, Simone Pathé, Senior Political Writer for Roll Call. I'm David Hawkins, the Senior Editor at CQ and Roll Call. You've been listening to the Big Story Podcast. Thank you for doing so. And you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or NPR One.